0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to turn back to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just say by way of introduction, I mean, this obviously is a new chapter for us, isn't it? I mean, in so many ways, this is a new chapter. I mean, did did we think uh, a month ago that we would be sitting here like this, uh, uh, doing this? And the, the answer obviously is, is absolutely not. And again, I, I want to thank the Lord for the technology that we're making use of. You know, we tested this Wednesday night with our Bible study. And, uh, many of you got really excited. Uh, I know one of you, uh, even indicated that you would like to do this three times a week. So <laughs> I, I was, um, very pleased to, uh, to hear that it went so well. Uh, some of us were a little frustrated, you know, getting, getting hooked up, but, uh, you discovered that you were able to do it. And, and, uh, certainly that's, um, that, that's wonderful that the Lord has blessed us. So a lot of positive feedback and we thought this would be the best way to try to, um, save and continue to foster the community that we enjoy with one another. Because, uh, while all this may be exciting, the technology and everything and being able to do this, there's a, there is an itinerant danger and an inherent danger, uh, in doing this. And, and, um, the danger of this is uh, what I'll call spectating, um, What do I mean by spectating? I'm just simply forming a gerund out of the word spectator. Uh, One of the great dangers here is that, um, I mean, it's a perfect recipe for worshipers to become spectators. And that's one of the reasons why we chose uh, this format and the format that we chose is because we're trying to eliminate that. Now, what do I mean by spectators? I think it's probably clear enough for most of us, but. A spectator is someone who sits in the stands and watches the game or sits in the stands and watches the race. And it's impossible to be a spectator and a worshiper. You know, it's it's possible as a spectator to be drawn into uh worship. And uh, of course that is a that is a uh, that is an activity of the Holy Spirit. But as soon as he or she finds themselves uh being drawn in to worship, he or she ceases to be a spectator and becomes a worshiper. Now, um, someone might be, be thinking, okay, now why am I so concerned about that? Why am I making such a big deal about that? Well, that's what, that's what I take aim at this morning. That's, that's, that's the aim of this morning's message is to show, uh, why. And in fact, in our text this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna learn a lot about how the Lord transforms us into Christ likeness. And what I want to share with with you this morning is not only how the Lord transforms us into Christ likeness, but also share with you the relationship of worship uh, to that transformation. So that's our goal this morning is not only how we're transformed into Christ likeness. How does God do that? Uh, we're going to look at that. But I also want to look at that in relation in relative uh, to um to worship. How's worship relate to that? Now, if you look with me um, to 2 Corinthians 3, I'm going to begin reading with verse 1, then we'll read through verse um, 18. We'll pray and we'll go ahead and start. In verse 1, we find these words, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do call on you that you would be pleased to give us insight into these things, Father. Our text is very dense and hard to understand in so many ways. So, Father, we ask that, Lord, you would be our guide. You would be our teacher this morning. We recognize these words to be your words. We recognize these truths are your truths and and complete and perfect truth. So, Father, raise us. Raise us up to your word, O oh Father. Raise us up that we might see these things, that we might be instructed in these things, that we might find ourselves being transformed by these things. And we pray these things in your blessed name. Amen. Amen. As we're reading through that, if you're thinking, "What in the world is what? What? How do we make sense of that?" Don't feel bad, because this is really—it's um, not—it's not the clearest text of Scripture you know there there's uh there's a lot of difficulties in these verses um they're very densely packed uh if you will and um i want to begin with verse 18 uh, in verse 18 uh, we find these words first of all and we all you see the words and we all um who is paul speaking to when he says and we all um who is he speaking to? If you turn back with me to uh, chapter one of the text, there we see these words. Uh, Paul. Uh, Paul, obviously, is the uh, uh, author, the apostle Paul. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Then notice what comes next, to the church of God, to the church of God. Now, that the, the, obviously, Second Corinthians is not written in English. It's written in Greek. And I, I, I point this out to you. There's a, there's a word that's used. The, the word that we translate church is actually the Greek word ekklesia. And I bring that to your attention for a couple of reasons. One is some of you will recognize that word. It's the word we get ecclesiastical from or the uh, the, the book Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Uh, comes from this ecclesia and an ecclesia is a gathering it's uh it's a gathering so uh paul is writing to the gathering and notice that we have a phrase here a prepositional phrase right after church it's possessive it's of god so we have the gathering of god or we could put it another way it's the gathering that belongs to god it is a gathering that god has pulled to himself it's a gathering that god has drawn to himself. It is God's gathering uh, in Corinth. And with that gathering uh, is all of the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now now notice that saints here, saints are believers. They're those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, who have been gathered to him, who have been brought into him. So Paul is writing uh, to those whom he has gathered uh, to himself. And the original audience is those in Corinth and Achaia. Uh, but of course, through them and through the apostle Paul, through this, uh, this is uh, this is being addressed to all uh, who come to God in in saving faith. And if you go back to chapter three and verse eighteen again, you'll notice that there's a further qualification. And we all, with unveiled face, now unveiled face. What is what? Unveiled face. What we might ask now, what is that all about? Well, that, that'll bring us into the context. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, uh, where we began reading, uh, Paul starts out by saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation? Letters of recommendation to you or from you. Uh, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Now, what, what's going on with that? Now, there is a compl- a really complicated history behind this. And I I was wrestling for the last couple of days, how to maybe put this into a, a, um, um, you know, kind of a shortened version, because if I go through the whole thing, it's going to tax our minds. And we're not going to be able to, our minds aren't going to be quite as sensitive and attuned to the point that I want to make this morning. If we were going to be doing a verse by verse study of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then I, I would do this slowly over time. And begin to unravel the complex history that's here. Uh, let me just say this for this morning that the, the, the apostleship of Paul is being challenged by a number of opponents. And Paul is defending his apostleship. And that's why he's saying, listen, do we need, do we need letters of credentials here? Do we need letters of recommendation here? He goes on and he says in verse two, you're our letter of recommendation. He looks at the church and says, you're, well, you're, you want credentials, you are our credentials. Now, Paul plants the church in Corinth at the end of his second missionary journey. It's recorded for us in chapter 18 of Acts. And uh, um, so, you know, what he's basically saying to the to those in Corinth, I'm getting these boxes put over my screen here, pardon me there. What he's saying here is is that uh, the fact that, the ch- there are believers in the Church of Corinth. Is testimony that Paul has been sent. Now, undoubtedly, Paul came into Corinth and he pre- he preached the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, people believed. And of course, the fact that they're believing, the fact that there's a church there, Paul is saying that there is our that there is there is our credentials. He says in verse two, "You are our letter of recommendation." And now notice how notice how he adds to this. He says, "Written on our hearts to be known and read by all." And then he adds in verse three, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, with these words, Paul is setting up a contrast. It's important for us to see this contrast. He is contrasting the ministry of Moses with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why when you think of tablets of stone, it's, you know, we read from Exodus 34 this morning, and there uh, Moses has these tablets of stone. And what is written on the tablets of stone? I, mean, I think we all know the answer to that. It's the ten words, if you will, or the ten commandments. And so uh, the Apostle Paul is, he's is contrasting the ministry of Moses with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is, uh, the Tablets of stone with tablets of human hearts. And, of course, uh, probably on the apostles' mind are the great prophecies of uh, Jeremiah, for instance. where Jeremiah prophesies a new covenant where the law of God, instead of being written on stone, would be written on hearts. Uh, this is something that is undoubtedly on the apostles' mind as he's writing this. He continues in verse 4. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, He's making it real clear that we this this power is not intrinsic to to us, but this is the power of God. He says our sufficiency is from God. At the end of verse five, verse six, he adds, "Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life." Uh, he speaks of the Uh, Ministry of death in verse 7, carved on letters of stone. Now, again, what he's contrasting here is one aspect of the ministry of Moses with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I I must stop right here because this is a stumbling stone for so many people. Because we read through this and we say, okay, the letter kills. And uh, uh, this ministry of Moses is a ministry of death. Therefore, Moses bad. Uh ministry of Holy Spirit, good. Um that's that's gonna miss what Paul's talking about, and that's that's reading things into this that Paul is certainly not saying. Um and we'll see that even in verse seven, where he speaks about the ministry of Moses coming with glory, uh such glory actually, uh that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. You know, we read that story in Exodus thirty-four. There's Moses come down comes down from the mountain. He's not even aware of it, but he's been with the Lord for 40 days. And he comes down reflecting the glory of the Lord. So he mustn't come to the conclusion that the ministry of Moses is bad. What Paul is referring to here, and it's important, it's imperative that we see this, he's referring to one aspect of the ministry of Moses. Or we might even say more specifically, he's referring to one aspect of the ministry of the law. And that particular aspect is the law's ability to convict and condemn. You know, the the law is powerless to make us righteous. Uh, All all the law can do is condemn us. When the law is given to sinners, it condemns. And that's what Paul's referring to here. You know, Paul says, Paul offers a great commentary on this, actually, in Romans 7. You don't need to turn there, but Romans 7 and verse 7, you know, starting with around verse 7 there, Paul talks about, uh, the law, he says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet until the law said, "Thou shalt not covet." Uh, then, uh, then what happens? It produced all kind of covetousness in me. Um, you know, we, we could take a we could take an illustration from our children. You know, little Junior begins to crawl, and it's not long after little Junior begins to crawl, he figures out how to open up the cabinet cupboard, cupboard doors. And at first, you know, you watch him, and it's cute. He He's amazed that he's got these little arms and little fingers, and he can grab this door and he can pull it open. And he he stares at the at the uh, door, you know, as it's opening and closing, opening and closing. But then comes the law. Mom sees this and says, "Hey, stay out of that cupboard." And he's like those two gophers on that commercial, you know, that are chucking the wood, you know. And they say, "Who's chucking my wood?" And those gophers they give that kind of ooh, you know. As uh, soon as the law comes, what happens? It excites the rebel in little Junior. And he can't, he can't, he can't help himself. I mean, he has to get in that cupboard, really, largely because the law has come and the law has told him to get in that cupboard. Well, that's what the, that's the effect that the law has on our hearts. Now, is that bad? Well, the the effect of it is condemnation. Uh, the, you know, if you go through the Ten Commandments, this is the first commandment, which says, I shall not have any other gods. Um, you want to think about it commandment, I, I mean, that's the negative. You shall not have any other gods. Jesus gives us the positive uh, of that commandment, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, w- when we when we examine ourselves to see how we're doing with that commandment, how does it work out for us? I mean, in order to keep that commandment, that means that we love the Lord more than we love life, more than we love our lives, more than we love our spouse. More than we love our children. More than we love any gift that God would give to us. Now, you know, if we fail at that first one, they all come tumbling down. Um, So, what does the the effect of the law? This is what Paul's referring to with this, uh, this, the letter kills, if you will, or this ministry of death carved in letters of stone. Now, he's referring to the the fact that this, that this law comes with glory. Now, let me, let me give you a, a positive example of the law. How could the law come with glory? The law is reflective of the glory of God. You know, if we want to ask the question, if someone were to ask you, what is God like? Here's a way you could answer really easily in a way I think they would begin to start to understand and a way they begin to uh, really meditate on it. You could say, well, think of the Ten Commandments. You could go through the Ten Commandments with them and say, well, let's start with the last one. The last one is you shall not come. Okay, what is God like? He's a God who's incapable of coveting. I mean, we think about it. I mean, there isn't anything that God can't have. Uh, How could he covet anything? Uh, He he can't covet anything. Or we could think of the ninth commandment. Uh, Thou shalt not give false testimony. I mean, the Bible tells us it's impossible for God to lie. Now, what does that teach us about God? It teaches us that he is a God of impeccable and infinite integrity. You know, a, f- a few weeks ago, I was speaking about integrity, and I asked you to go through this exercise. I said, you know, think about somebody who's in your life, who you would say is a person of great integrity. And as soon as you think about that person, their their face comes into mind. And when their face comes into mind, you smile, don't you? You know, you, you smile. And um, why do you smile? It's because they're beautiful. It's because integrity is beautiful. Uh, The ninth commandment leads us to the beauty and the glory of God, as do all the commandments. You know, we think of the eighth commandment, I shall not steal. How can God steal? He has created everything and he owns everything, including every one of us. He cannot steal. There is nothing to be stolen. God owns everything. So, you know, you can think of adultery. God promises he will never adulterate himself. And sometimes we sing, great is thy faithfulness. You know, what do we say? That God is faithful. He will not adulterate himself in any way. Uh, God will never murder. Well, someone will say, well, wait a second. People die every day. Yeah, well, the wages of sin is death. That's why death has come into this world. That's why we're gathered here this morning. One of the effects of the fall of mankind is a curse upon creation. And now we've got viruses. You know, we've got we've got plagues. We've got epidemics. We've got pestilences. as we were looking at last week. Um, it's a result of the fall. the wages of sin is death. God is not a, a murderer; He is a just judge, and that's why we we each face death and so we can continue to go write down the commandments and positively the commandments reveal the glory and the splendor and the majesty uh, of Almighty God. So this ministry of Moses it comes with great, great glory in verse seven of our text, we're told it comes with such glory that the Israelites cannot even gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Um, and he, he goes, uh, Paul continues to develop this in a couple of different ways. He says uh, that, uh, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? In verse 8, for nine, verse 9, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Now, um on my desk right here, I don't know if I move my computer a little bit, maybe you can see it um, on my desk right here, there you go. you see that lamp. um I don't like things on my desk. I mean sometimes I get behind and my desk starts to look a little bit cluttered, but the only thing that's on my desk right now are the things I need to do this worship service. I like to keep this desk completely empty and only what I'm working on on this desk, but I have that lamp on the desk, and the reason I have that lamp on the desk is My brother made that lamp for me when he was in high school. So this lamp is really important. And when it's dark out, this lamp actually does a lot to illuminate this desk. And it it offers a lot of light. But right now, um, I have four windows in here. And um, with the sun being out, these four windows actually practically render. The lamp is on right now. But if I turned it off, you probably wouldn't even notice the difference. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in reference to uh, the glory of Moses, the glory of Moses' ministry, the, mini- the glory of the ministry through Moses. It came with glory, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit has come with so much glory. It's like this lamp. Now, the, glo- the, the lighting of the sun renders this lamp to where you, you don't even hardly notice it's on. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing in, in those verses. And then in verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, were very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Now, Paul's developing a couple of things. I don't want to go into all of them because, again, it's, it's going to be so much detail. We will have to do that another time. But one thing I want to point out about this is the reason. That the Israelites are afraid to stare at Moses is because they're lawbreakers, they're covenant lawbreakers, and that is why we flee from the presence of God. That's why the name of Jesus has the effect in our culture that it has. Uh, we we want to try to push God as far away from us as possible, we, as as um, uh, as unbelievers. We do not want Jesus meddling with our lives any more than little junior wants mom told him to stay out of that cupboard. Uh, that's the problem. That's the problem we have. So we see that this is a result of a hardened mind. It's the result of a hardened heart, if you will. Uh, it's the result of this. Now, Paul tells us something that's, that's, that's pretty remarkable here. If you look at verse 14, he says, Their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, That same veil remains unlifted. Um, If you look at verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, where do you suppose Moses is being read in this context? He's being read in the synagogues. In other words, he's being read in a worship service. So people are gathering for worship. And Moses in this context is the Bible. And the Bible is being read. But the people have a veil over their face. And Paul's saying that this happens to this day, speaking of his, his current context. But listen, let me make application of that now. I can tell you right now that there's there are services being conducted right now and the Bible is being read and there are people with veils over their faces. a scary thought then why is the veil over their faces it's it's because of a hard heart and a hard mind Um, paul tells us in verse 14 that it's only through christ that this veil is taken away Um, but we might ask well how, how does the veil get removed how do we get rid of the veil verse 16 answers when one turns to the lord the veil is removed now Somebody might be asking right now, uh, okay, um, how do I know whether I have a veil over my eyes or not? How do I know whether my face is veiled as the scripture is being read and being explained? Some of you will be familiar with my answer because I've had this conversation with some of you. And I asked you to, when this subject came up, I asked you to, to to do this exercise, I asked you this question. Um, Is Jesus a living, beautiful, majestic and glorious presence in your life? Or is he more like a concept? In other words, are you living for the beauty of Christ? Is Jesus your everything? Or is he more like a concept? Because if he's more like a concept, then there's a veil over your eyes. One of my favorite ways to explain this, Jesus is such a masterful teacher. In Matthew 13, and you don't necessarily have to turn there. You can if you want. But in in Matthew 13, Jesus tells two parables that just, just light this up as the masterful teacher that he is. He just lights this one up with these two parables. and I love these. They're my favorite parables. They're each one verse in length. In Matthew 13 and verse 44, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, you see, that treasure is no concept to this man. That treasure is everything to him. He has to have that treasure. What's most important to him is that treasure. He joyfully, in his joy, he sells everything he has that he might have that treasure. In other words, he is unwilling to let anything get in the way between him and this treasure, regardless of what it is. Jesus tells a second parable in verse 45. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and brought it. Now, that's not something a person whose eyes are veiled is going to do. If if our eyes are veiled, we're going, we, and listen, right? we We can believe that Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. We can believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. We can believe that he died on the cross. We can believe that he was raised on the third day. We can believe that he's reigning at the right hand of God the Father right now in absolute um, absolute authority because the devil and his demons believe all that stuff. But if there's a veil over our eyes, it's going to have no changing, uh, life-transforming effect in our lives. We're going to believe that very similar to the way we believe George Washington is the first president. I mean, I've heard some people say, I don't believe Washington was the first president. I believe it's some kind of conspiracy people. Oh, I say that as a joke. I think all of us believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, but, but that hasn't, that's not a life changing fact. But when the veil is removed from your eyes and you behold Jesus in his glory, that is a life transforming thing. And that takes us back to chapter three. And verse 18. Notice what Paul is saying here in chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. They're beholding the glory of the Lord because the veil has been removed. And we don't see perfectly, we see as a glass dimly, but we see the glory of God. Now, someone might be putting themselves through this diagnostic, if you will, and they say, Well, you know what, I'm going to confess. That And it's kind of scary. This is kind of scaring me because I'm going to confess that, yeah, Jesus does seem more like a concept than he does a living, beautiful, majestic, splendor uh presence in my life. What do I do if that's the case? What do I do if Jesus is just a concept? Paul answers the question. Paul answers the question in Romans 10. He says that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Moses, in our context, we could – We could look at Moses and take a leaf out of his book. Moses says in Exodus 33, in the context of the passage that we read this morning, he says, oh, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord is pleased to show him his glory. And that happens in the beginning parts of chapter 34 of Exodus. And we have a promise, and you can write this down. Jesus promises that all who come to him, in fact, he says, all the Father who gives me will come to me, and all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. That's John 6 and verse 37. There's a promise. Now, someone will say, well, how do I know if the Father has given me to Jesus? Well, if you're coming to him, you can know that the Father is giving you to Jesus. If I share this stuff to 10 people and nine people say, no, thank you, Rick. Um uh, Don't give me your religion. But then the 10th person says, you know what? This is curious. Can you tell me more? Well, that person that person there is uh, very possibly one whom the Father has given to Christ. And Jesus will not turn that person away. So if we're hearing this and we're saying, you know what, I wonder if the veil is I wonder if the veil is still in my eyes. Faith comes from hearing. You're hearing the word of Christ right now. We have to get to know Jesus. We get to know him by reading his word, especially by reading the gospels. And I would counsel anyone who if you're thinking your veil is still over your eyes, read the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Mark. Uh, read the Gospel of John. Uh, read Genesis. We've just completed a, a study, almost of an entire book of Genesis. There's many sermons to listen to. Uh, begin to saturate yourself in the Word of God because faith comes from uh, from hearing. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because what I'm about to share now will not make any difference if the veil is still over your eyes. I promise to show how uh, the Lord makes us into uh, Christ-likeness. And if you go back to chapter 3, verse 18, you'll see this. Notice Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Now, this word transformed is such a cool word. It's the word that we get the English word metamorphosis from. I've always thought metamorphosis is a cool word all the way back when I was watching the Hulk, you know, I've, I, you, know, you know, some of us will remember the Hulk, you know, Bill Bixby has this metamorphosis in terms of this big green guy who's from Luferigno. And sorry about that. I probably shouldn't even have brought that up, but, um, but this metamorphosis, you know, this metamorphosis, this transformation, uh, notice what Paul is saying, beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Christ. How are we transformed? And it's causal. The relationship between these words is causal. How are we being transformed? We are being transformed as we behold the glory. As we turn our eyes upon Jesus, changes take place. One glimpse of his beauty will change your life forever. And this change, notice in the ESV anyway, it says from one degree of glory to another. Some of your translations vary just slightly on that but from one degree of glory to another it's progressive god moves that progression at his will and there are times where he might move it very quickly there's other times where it seems moving so slow that we don't maybe even realize it's moving but here's the thing how do how do we um how, how do we um how are we transformed uh, we are transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord. That's why it's so important. What we're doing here right now is so very important. Now, what's the relationship of this to worship, as I promised? Worship is the response. It's the human response of beholding the glory of the Lord. See, a spectator can't do this. A spectator is watching this go on from the outside. But as the Holy Spirit draws the spectator into worship and the veil is removed, And we begin to see the glory of Lord, then the spectator becomes a worshiper. And as we become a worshiper, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Does that make sense? Is that exciting or what? And that's why over the last, I don't know how long, I'm like, we could uplift. Listen, I could just preach this sermon to a camera and and Donald could, you know, he could play and, and sing into a camera and we could pray into a camera and, and we could upload that and we could send that off. But what I was scared to death is that we would become spectators for the next, I don't know how long, two months, three months. That will have a great adverse effect, a effect on our walk with the Lord. But many of us don't realize how important worship is. And you don't realize how important worship is until you, until you're not engaged in it. I can guarantee once you quit engaging yourself in corporate worship like this, um, you will, you will, the effects will be immediate. They will be immediate. This is God's design. How does he make us like us? Listen, in our private study, for sure, we can behold the glory of God and we can grow to a degree, but without a commitment to a, the body of Christ, to a local ministry, to a local fellowship. Your growth will be horribly stunted. It will only go to a certain part, to a certain place. And there are so many things that you will never be able to accomplish uh, uh, alone as uh, an isolated individual. So this is so very, very important. It's important that we're not spectators. And I have a a bit of application here that that would like to uh, to add, Um, given the importance of this Of this worship and having uh, explained, uh, carefully explained the dynamic of this worship, I I want to uh, throw this out. I mean, we need to prepare. I mean, we need to be preparing our hearts for worship. Someone will say, well, when should we prepare our hearts for worship? I suggest Wednesday night after Bible study is over that we begin doing that. But certainly Saturday, uh, that we begin Friday, Saturday, we begin to prepare our hearts for worship. Why? Well, because of this dynamic that goes on in worship. As we come together, the Lord meets with us in a way that he doesn't meet with us for the rest of the week. I mean, he will meet with us and he can meet with us very powerfully. And I'm not discounting these these uh, these these very important uh personal moments that we have where it's just between us and God. And those are wonderful. But his design is to gather us together. We are the gathered we are the, we are the gathered ones. We are the gathered of God in the tri-state area, if you will. Just as the original audience of Corinthians were the gathered of God in Corinth and Achaia. We are the gathered assembly. Why does God want to gather his assembly? So he can meet with us. So that we can behold his glory. So that the Holy Spirit can transform us into the likeness of Christ and we respond in worship. That's what God is up to. And that's why it's so important That we look forward to this we first have to understand what it is but then let us prepare our hearts i mean we gather we gather here uh for this worship dynamic now um you know one of the things i was going to i was going to suggest this morning is you'll notice i'm i'm dressed this morning just like i would have been dressed if we were uh if we were meeting at the building that we're normally meeting at and the reason for that is going through the pattern and i see many of you are you're you're dressed exactly like you were if you were in worship. And and that's an important thing. I, 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 you know, I haven't said anything about dress code in 12 years, uh, but this morning I want to say a couple of things. It's important that we go through that. As we're separated like this, what that's doing is that's reminding us, listen, we're getting ready for worship. We're getting ready to meet with the Lord. And actually, the way we dress is a theological statement. The way we dress is a theological statement. Whenever you start talking about dress code, there's such a risk of offending people. And I certainly don't want to offend anyone. But well, how we dress actually says multitudes about ourselves. You know, if you if you go to 7-Eleven or you go to Walmart or something, you just watch the way people uh, are dressed. It says a lot, actually. Uh, for instance, if someone works for a company, they might have a uniform on. Um, and the uniform might have a company logo. And we can kind of... Just by looking at how they're dressed, we get a good idea of what they do and what their vocation is. Or if a, someone comes in, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, someone who works on a farm and everything, they they, they might have certain boots on and uh, they may be wearing overhauls, you know. Uh, we just learn so much about people by the way they dress. The way we dress as we approach worship is going to be very reflective of our understanding of the holiness of God and who God is. You know, unfortunately, it was a pattern that was set, you know, probably back in the 90s, maybe even the 80s. I don't recall, but uh, where it became hip to kind of just worship God in a, you know, in a, a Hawaiian shirt with um, shorts and flip flops, you know, um, that, that's, um, I, I hope we're all beyond that, uh, passing phase. Um, so, and again, I don't want to offend anybody, but. Um, and I don't want to set these requirements and I don't want to give anybody the impression that we put our religion on with our Sunday clothes. You all know me better than that. You know, better than that. You know, I'm not saying anything like that. Also, you know, the last thing I'd want to do is offend anybody. We reach in our cupboard. If we don't, we don't have much to wear, you reach in the cupboard and you find the best thing you have and you put it on. And that's, that's reflective of where our heart is. You know, someone might say, well, you know, it doesn't matter how you dress. It matters where your heart is. Well, guess, listen, where your heart is, is going to dictate how you dress. So it's 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 it. But but for today, the, the, the point I want to make this morning is going through that motion, especially, uh, you know, I see kids and some of these screens. This is telling the children, listen, OK, we're not, you know, we're, we're worshiping right now. What we're doing is worshiping and they can ask questions. Why do we got to get all dressed up and we're not going to the building? Well, you can, It's a teaching vehicle where you can say to your kids, you can say, well, listen, the reason the reason we're doing this is because, well, this is how God makes us like Christ. We're all going to come together and God is going, we're going to behold God's glory. And as we behold God's glory, he's going to transform us into Christ's likeness and we're going to respond to him in worship. And this is really a big deal. This is a great thing. There is no job interview. There is no appointment on our calendar that's more important than this. So that is why, uh, that's why we're going through these motions. So I hope I'm not being misunderstood here. I certainly don't want to offend anybody or hurt anyone's feelings. Um, the second point that I want to make, the first is we want to remember this worship dynamic. The second point that I want to make is that we call on the Lord to set our minds on Him. Um, man, there, there's so many things that we got to deal with. You know, some of us, some of us might be wondering, you know, how, how's all this going to work out? What's going to happen to our companies and our businesses and what have you? And, uh, but, but worldly concerns, they dim. Our affections—they—they they crowd our attention. They dull our senses, and um, I, I can tell all of you. I've been praying for you that the Lord would would would, and I like to use song lyrics sometimes when I pray that He would tune your hearts to praise Him. That's one way of saying this. I, I pray that the Lord would set your minds and your emotions free. I pray that the Lord will open up your minds, set your set the worldly concerns. Uh, aside for today that we may behold his glory. Why is that so important to me? Because I want to see you continue to grow in grace. You're growing so wonderfully. And one of the reasons you're doing it is you've been coming to worship for uh, every Lord's Day for how long? And it might not seem like uh, that growth is taking place, but trust me, trust me, I see it all over you. And it's happening. And, and this is an opportunity where uh, we can we can really grow uh, through this. But it's also It also has its dangers, Uh, so we want to be just aware uh, of the dangers. The third thing I would say, uh, in in this, there's no order to these. I might have should have said this first, is we repent of our sins. Uh, Sin, obviously, is a barrier, and I could have said that first, but I don't have these in any special order. Uh, But, of course, we want to repent of our sins. Sin separates us from God. Uh, Sin is the reason the Israelites wanted Moses to cover their face, or cover his face. Uh, Sin is the reason there's a veil. Um, so we repent of that sin. Uh, that, that veil is removed as we, as we, as we uh, believe in Jesus savingly, we confess our sins to Him turning from them. The last thing that I will say and leave you with this is, uh, we, re- we prepare so that we are available. We prepare on Friday or Saturday, or it might be that we have to prepare all week, depending on how busy our schedule is. We prepare so we are available. Um, I'll give you an example from my life. When, uh, when I was going to seminary, I think probably the most busiest time of my life was the last year and a half of seminary. Um, at that time, uh, I was traveling all the way to the other side of Pittsburgh pretty regularly, uh, four days a week. And I was, um, I was working two part-time jobs, which amounted to uh, a full-time employment. And I was going to seminary. Uh, it was an absolute crazy time. But one thing that I made sure that I did, no matter how pressing, uh, if I didn't feel I was quite ready for a test by Saturday night, then so be it. Those school books, that work got put away uh, so that I was available on the Lord's Day. Um, we have to make ourselves available, and we just trust in the Lord. There's no schoolwork being done on the Lord's Day. You make yourself available. See, we have to plan for that. Uh, we have to plan for that, or the tyranny of the urgent will step in and we'll find it it's it's just crowding the day with these activities like God has given us the Lord's day so that we can do just that he's given us the Lord's day so we can behold his glory it's a gift to us to behold his glory i realize some of us have to work on the lord's day we, there's not much we can do about that but if you can get another job do it you know the wor- worship you know, worship is the most important thing we do it's the most important thing that you're going to do in this life and certainly in the life to come uh we have to understand that so, what we do on Saturday will have a great effect on what we do Sunday. And furthermore, what we do on Saturday will affect how we do it on Sunday. So, hopefully those things uh, are making sense. Um, so, we see the worship dynamic. We see how we're being transformed into Christ's likeness. We see the uh, relationship of worship to beholding God's glory. And with those works, let us pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we so thank you. And we so praise you, Father, that you have revealed to us your designs and your designs to make us like Christ. And, oh, Father, we so thank you that, Lord, you, you make us like Christ by showing us yourself, by pulling the veil off of our eyes, and by enabling us to uh, to see you and to behold you, which elicits the response of worship. So in in many ways worship becomes a, such an important part uh, worship being the byproduct of beholding you we can see that worship so much transformation takes place uh through worship uh, worship being a response to the beholding oh you know, father we recognize that we see you we see you in your word and father that's why we read so much scripture on the lord's day that's why we study the scriptures on wednesday that's why we study your word throughout the week and father we see your your word and the songs that we sing. That's why we sing psalms. It's your word. That's why many of the lyrics we sang uh, this morning, Father, they're scriptural. They're right out of the word of God so that we can behold your glory as we sing back to you in response of worship. And, oh, Father, I pray for everybody who is here this morning, Father. If there's anyone who has a veil over their eyes, remove that veil, oh, Father. Cause them to behold your glory. And maybe there's someone here who's curious about that. They're just saying, well, what is up with this? Father, lead them, draw them, draw them by way of your Holy Spirit, that they will seek you. And like Jacob, they will not let you go until you bless them. Oh, Lord, we have your promise that you will not turn anyone away who comes to you. And, oh, Father, pull the veil from our eyes, that we may behold you and behold you ever more clearly, that we may grow in Christ's likeness and respond in worship, oh, Father. And we thank you, oh, Father, for all these things. Amen. And yeah, amen.